the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Our first reading comes from the 11th chapter of the book, 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, uh, from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will do no such thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And then he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbabel? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone from the wall, so he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, during my middle school and high school years, I went to a small Christian school in southwest Minnesota. And my school did something that really set itself apart. You see, during spring break, when every other school let their kids go off for vacation and trips and fun, our school actually sent all of our students on short-term mission trips. So we had raised money. And then when spring break hit, all the buses would line up. Instead of taking us home, they would take us all over the country and sometimes even out of the country to serve people in need. And so because of this, I've served all over the place during those years. I've been at Wichita. I went to St. Louis twice. I went to Chicago. I even went down south of the border to Mexico. And then one year I actually served in a neighboring town because there was a horrible tornado that came through and just utterly devastated this town right next to ours. So the whole school, all the students, all the teachers, we went out and for that whole week, we just helped people put their lives back together because it had just been utterly destroyed by this horrible, horrible tornado. Well, because of these experiences, I'm a pretty big proponent of short-term missions. And not just because it pours love and and the love of Christ into people's lives for a week, but I, I also think it does something amazing for the person who does it. You see, probably even more, because there's something amazing when you take a week of your life and you put all of your focus on somebody who's in need, somebody who has less than you. It's amazing how your perspective on life begins to shift when you do things like this. Well, this week we begin our our second week of our new sermon series called Erasing Envy. And we've been talking about the devastating effects of envy in our lives. How we're told in the Bible that it produces disorder, havoc, destruction. And we know it's true because if we look back at some of our worst decisions, some of our worst mistakes... I would say most of them, if not all of them, were directly driven by this issue of envy that got coming out of us as we looked around and and, and really fought these things. But as you think about envy, you would assume that some people would be completely exempt from it, right? Some people have so much, how could they struggle with envy? And today we're actually going to encounter a story of somebody who on, on surface value seems like they have everything. You see, we're going to encounter King David, a a hero of the faith in most regards, a person who has everything. As we read through scripture, we see that he's athletic, right? He's this amazing soldier, but he's also musical. It says he has many beautiful wives. He's obviously the king, so he has power and authority and money. He has everything. What more could David want? But yet even David struggled with envy. And this is his story. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. 
So as we enter into David's story, this piece of history, we see it's the springtime. It says the time when, when people go to war. And the reason they say this is because this is the time when the ground was getting hard, right? And so they could take the horses out and the chariots out and they could go to battle. But it also says this is the time when kings go to war. You see, there was an expectation that the king was leading the battle. He was leading the charge. And so this is very, very strange that David was not there because it says he remained in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the motivation of why David wasn't helping lead the charge, why he wasn't in the fray with everyone else. We don't know why his decision-making skills pushed him in this direction. We just know that he stayed at home. Maybe he thought these armies were weak and he wasn't required, or, or maybe just wanted a little vacation. But we see that he's in Jerusalem. And this actually sets up our problem for today. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So as we step back into the story, we see that David's walking around on the roof of his house. Now, in this day, this wouldn't be abnormal. They had flat roofs, and they kind of viewed this, this upstairs kind of as a secondary room, right? Their roof was a, a secondary room, and so they would spend time up there, and David was doing that, and he's walking around. But it offered him a unique vantage point of the city. And he actually unintentionally stumbled into seeing a woman bathing, right? And so he sees that she's very, very beautiful. And he steps into a space where envy could creep in if he doesn't just shift his gaze, if he doesn't go in a different direction. But he begins to inquire about her. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So David has enough curiosity that he sends a messenger and they come back with the report. Uh, This woman, she's married, right? Right away, that should have stopped the conversation, right? We don't don't mess with the sacredness of, of marriage. And so that should have stopped the conversation. But if that didn't stop the conversation, this second detail really should have. You see, he uses these very specific names of Uriah and Eliam. And the reason he does that is because David knows who these guys are. They're part of his leading fighting force, right? They are his soldiers. And not just his soldiers, but the elite men of David. These are people that he knows. These are people that would give his life for David. These are people that he's fought alongside. These are people that he respects and knows and cares for. You see, all these add up that David shouldn't go any further. But envy gets the best of him. This is what he does. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after a period. Then she returned to her house. So David takes this a step too far. He sends the messengers. And when they show up, I'm sure she probably knows what's happening, right? What the expectation is. But in that day, her natural tendency would be say, no. And the reason is to commit adultery in that culture was a capital offense. If you cheated on your spouse, the penalty was death. But this was the king. And if you disobey the king, what is he going to do? And so she's caught in this conundrum. You see, David used his power and authority to get what he wanted. And so she goes... She goes to his, his home, and they sleep together. And then we get this awkward detail about her, which will really come into play in this next section. 
The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You see, the reason that detail is in there is because they're supposed to know, we're supposed to know that she was not pregnant already. So she sends word to David and says, look, I'm pregnant and it's yours. In other words, there's no hiding this. It's obvious that adultery has been committed and it's a death penalty. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And everyone's going to know what has happened. So David begins to hatch a plan to cover his tracks, and this is what he does. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. So David does something very strange. He grabs one of his elite fighting men away from the battlefield to just bring him a message. Now, there were people who were supposed to do that that weren't good fighters, but for some reason, he brings Uriah. So this whole situation would be very, very, very strange for Uriah. And he brings this man in who he has just, you know, seduced this man's wife and asks him about what's going on. How is the war going? Just kind of shooting the breeze like everything is normal. Well, the story continues. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David says to Uriah, go home, wash your feet. In other words, what he's saying is go home and relax, right? Go home and just pretend there's not a war going on. Just go home, wash your feet, just enjoy yourself. And then he takes it one step further, right? It says he sends a present. Now we don't know what the present is, but I'm pretty sure it's something to set the mood, right? It's probably a nice bottle of wine or something because David has a very specific plan here. He wants to cover his tracks, but his plan is foiled. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to the house. See, Uriah foiled the plan. He didn't go home. Therefore, David's tracks were not covered. And David finds out this is what happens. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. You see, Uriah was a good guy. Uriah was a, a loyal friend, a loyal soldier. He was a good person. He says, David, I can't go home to my wife. All of my brothers in arms, they're still fighting. They're still putting their lives on the line. How can I go home and pretend like nothing is happening when they're out there camping and, and potentially dying for the cause of, of our nation? Well, the story continues. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in, in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David hatches a new plan, right? Maybe if I can get him drunk, maybe his ethics will fade. His morals will fade. If he gets drunk enough, he'll, he'll probably go home. And if he goes home, my tracks will be covered. But once again, this doesn't work. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. 
and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. You see, because David's plan was foiled once again, envy takes one more step forward in its destructive nature. And David decides the only way to fully cover my tracks is if I kill this guy off. So he says to the general, this is what I need you to do. I want you to send Uriah to the front where those fighting is happening and then pull everyone back except for Uriah. He'll be overwhelmed and he will die. Once David hatches this evil plan, he writes it down, he seals it, and then he puts, puts the death sentence right in the hand of Uriah and commands him to carry it to his general. Well, this is what happens next. As Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. So Joab gets the instructions, but he doesn't quite follow them because he understands that if he does what David wants him to do, that he's going to lose all the respect of the soldiers. It's going to be obvious that he's trying to kill Uriah. So instead of just sending Uriah out there and pulling all the soldiers back, instead, he just puts them in a bad place, right? He sets up a bad military strategy. So we have Uriah dying, but we also have other people dying. So he begins to send his message back to David. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. When you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? So he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. You see, he prepares the messenger because he knows what he has done is a bad strategy. He knows the response that David should give, which is, why would you do this? This is bad military leadership. Why would you put yourself and why would you put your men in a situation where, where surely they would die? There's no way they're going to win this. I mean, they had the advantage. They were up top. You were below. Why would you do this? So he prepares the messenger for this response. He says, when he gets worked up, when he gets angry, tell him Uriah the Hittite has died. So this is what the messenger does. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger tells him, this is what we did. It was unwise. It was bad strategy. Some men died and Uriah died as well. And he expects an explosion, right? He expects anger. He expects something, but this is what he gets. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So David gives this bizarre response, at least bizarre to the messenger who doesn't know the story like we know the story. He says, oh, it's war. 
People die. Mistakes are made. It's no big deal. Go back and encourage Joab. Let him keep pressing in. Let him keep doing what he's called to do. Well, envy has sunk its teeth in. And there's a result. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So the wife is obviously broken. Her husband has died in battle. And so she mourns the typical seven days that a good Jewish person would mourn, right? She puts all of her energy into grieving her spouse. And then right after that, David brings her into his home. And for everyone who doesn't know what has happened, David looks like a hero. David took good David. He protected the spouse, the widowed spouse of this soldier who had died valiantly in the battlefield. He takes her into his home to watch over her because who's going to watch over her? Her husband is dead. And guess what? She's pregnant already. So now he's caring for the child of this soldier. What a good guy. What a good guy David is. At least that's what everyone thinks. Except for one person. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see... God knew the story like we know the story. He knew all the details. He saw envy take hold of David when he saw a beautiful woman as he went and continued to pursue her, even though he knew that she was married. And then he tried to set it up to cover his tracks, and then he ultimately killed off this man so he could have this woman as his own. And it greatly displeased God because this was a destructive nature of envy. Well, as we dive into this story today, we continue to ask ourselves the same question. How do we erase envy? How do we remove this destructive force from our life? You see, last week we started this conversation and and we looked into the story of Adam and Eve and we saw that just with a little bit of gratitude, right? If they were just thankful for what they had, they would have realized how good they really had it. Right? They were living in paradise where no pain and no sorrow and no sin. I mean, they had it made, but envy caught hold of them. And today we see something about David and we see something about ourselves. That if David would have just simply done one thing, this whole issue would have been resolved. You see, if David would have simply just shifted his gaze, right, looked in a different direction, looked at the situation for what it was, all of this tragic and horrible results of his envy wouldn't have happened. But this is a struggle for us, isn't it? I mean, we, we live in a culture that celebrates envy. In fact, we have full reality TV shows connected to this. I mean, you remember way back, about maybe 10, 20 years ago, there was a, a TV show that probably most of us watched. It was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Right? We'd flip on our TVs and we'd watch all the cars of the rich people. We'd go into their homes. We'd look at all their beautiful things. And what would that do? I wish I had that. I want to have that. The TV show actually was designed to inspire you to be envious, right? To be curious about what other people had that you didn't have. In our modern day, we still have shows like this. They're reality shows. They're things like The Bachelor, or The Bachelorette, right? 
very realistic scenario. 25 beautiful people all vying for the heart uh, of one other beautiful person. They go on these amazing dates where helicopters take them to private islands. I mean, you know, it's like all of us experience in our dating life. And we watch these things and we wish we could have experiences like this, right? That's envy. Or you watch shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which is just a bunch of rich people running around being rich. Or how about the Real Housewives of whatever big city, right? It's the same thing. We watch rich people doing rich people things, and then we wish we could do rich people things, right? These things are all connected to envy. So I'm going to propose some new TV shows that probably won't, uh, you know, actually you'll find on your network, but here's some of my thoughts. How about the Bachelor Sock Valley Community College Edition, right? The story of Joe and Susie, they're in English 101. They meet, they really like each other. They decide to go on a date, but they don't really have a lot of resources. So they go to Taco Bell, they sit down, they eat off the dollar menu, right? They get a couple of those uh, chili cheese burrito things, and they just have a great time hanging out. And then they see it's about to be four o'clock. So they hustle and they run down to the AMC to get that 350 matinee, right? And they have a great time together. They have this great little date. And then they jump in their 1995 Honda Accord and take it all the way back to campus. And they've had a great time. And they look forward to their next date. How about this one? The Real Housewives of Rock Falls. The story of Jennifer. And she works full-time at Casey's, right? She's a, a hard-working lady. And after her, her shift ends, she goes home to watch her kids. And right about that time, her husband, well, he has to go work at the Walmart distribution center. And he goes and he puts in his full-time shift. And this pattern just goes back and forth. One is working, one is watching the kids, and the bills are mounting up. And braces have to be paid for. And all these things are happening. It feels like they can never get ahead. You see, there's something amazing that happens when we put our focus, when we shift our gaze to people who have more needs than us. And one of those things that happens is that we have this amazing power to erase envy. Amen. Trouble